sacrificed eight months of my life. It's a fine balance between kissing away your younger years and setting yourself up for your future. I was bloated to the point I looked six months pregnant. I ran myself down to zero pounds the day of the launch. I got to a pretty high level. I rode for England. Improved my gut health is a terrible goal. What does that even mean? I remember sitting in my car, refreshing my screen, and it hitting 100k. And then the mountain top just moved further away. I want this to be hard, because that means people can't copy me. Kids are going to be consuming this content anyway. Might as well give them something that they can take away from it. You become accustomed to making the uncomfortable choice. The fundamental mission is helping as many people as possible. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the X Respective podcast with your host Zach Villeneuve-Snell. Today I'm joined by Ben Smith who is a best-selling author, founder of Live Gut Health and with over 150,000 Instagram followers shares his story of overcoming IBS, helping thousands in the process. Thanks for coming on to the podcast Ben. Pleasure. Um, like I said when, when you first reached out I really liked how you were doing something a bit different with you know, a bit of a psychology spin on things. So it's, it's a pleasure to come on and talk with you. I'll allow you some space to introduce yourself. What What is it that you currently are about and what do you do? I've, I've never really pinned down the, the best way to describe it, but something like along the lines of a gut health coach and an entrepreneur. So I set up the gut health coaching platform live that currently helps over uh, 800 people around the world from 50 different countries overcome digestive issues. And as you touched on, a massive part of that is just because I suffered myself and I experienced the lack of support from especially the traditional health system. So once I kind of was able to to help myself, there was a degree of a, a moral obligation to try and pass on that knowledge and help others. And obviously social media is, uh, yeah, there's no better way to, to reach people nowadays than through social media. So yeah, that has just become the kind of medium and the way of me spreading that, that message. Perfect. And along with what it is that you do, who are you in 2022? How would you describe yourself? Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, good question. I think half of my time is spent just kind of solving problems at the moment. Where where we're at with the coaching platform, it's, yeah, it's, it's very much a case of just making sure that, you know, everyone that, that comes to us that has put their faith in us just gets the level of support that we feel that they deserve. So it's always a balancing act between... You know, trying to incentivize and bring people on board, making sure that we, we've always got a lid on on things so that, that everyone's getting the right level of support from us. But yeah, fundamentally, a lot of my time now is just spent in front of the laptop and either creating or researching or producing in a way. Um, once the kind of coaching platform was set up, my, my day is just spent creating. So I'm as much a creator as I am a kind of founder as I am a coach so um, yeah having said that more and more now I spend a lot of my time just working one-to-one -one with people so I'm, I'm very much someone that has always been passionate about getting the most out of people or a person or a human being so for me as, as time goes on I find that more and more interesting and that's why this really is kind of a passion for me it's um, something that I get a great deal of fulfillment from just trying to help people become the best version of themselves so yeah there's kind of a lot of different angles to come at, at what i do but i think in order to do in order to be a creator as a whole you have to wear many different hats you have to kind of 
be good at lots of different things, as you'll probably know yourself. Um, when you're starting something, you have to, you know, do the editing, the video, the production, the copywriting, the social media. So it's a case of being a jack of all trades, but trying to at least be a master of one or two, which gives you a bit of a niche to go down. So that's that's a bit of a broad summary. And I'm sure we'll delve into the specifics of what that looks like and how that's come about uh, in more recent years. But if we rewind all the way back to Ben, maybe 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, <laughs> when you were yeah. a child, what were you like and what was growing up like? Um, growing up was hard. I'll, I'll be honest. I, like, I'm not going to claim I went through you know the hardship that I'm sure many people face, but I think for me, finding my place in the world finding my voice wasn't something that came necessarily naturally. I was an extremely shy kid. My parents and my family used to kind of joke that I could sit at the dinner table with, with you know, family there, eight people there, and I wouldn't say a word the whole meal. And that just came naturally to me. I just felt like I didn't really have anything to say in that moment. And in a way, a, a part of kind of the, the place I found in the world was just through observing and listening and thinking i'm i think a lot i think my dad always says that the kind of that's my greatest strength but also my greatest weakness is just how much i think about things so yeah that's kind of what what my childhood looked like just i've i've always naturally kind of been someone that spends a lot of time by themselves self i feel comfortable spending time by myself not to say that I'm not a very social person, but that's just something that kind of comes naturally to me. I I can go periods of time without kind of being around people and feel kind of completely comfortable with that, which probably facilitates the work that I do now because as an entrepreneur, you have to spend a lot of time by yourself. It's a relatively lonely road. So yeah, I, th I think I, I, I always used to be quite creative though. Um, when I was a lot younger, I had an art scholarship in school, but I think the way that the education system kind of teaches and assesses art, I kind of lost a bit of the love for it as time went on, and it became more about how you documented your art than how than the art you created. So as a whole, like I said, just a case of me figuring out and finding like my voice and what I was what I was passionate about um, is the way I would kind of describe my earlier years. It's interesting to hear the, the quite distinct parallels between where you find yourself now in a fundamental sense of being a creative type but being quite isolated, I suppose. Do you think there was anything in particular about um, potentially family influences or friends or how you kind of interacted with friendship groups when you were, let's say, the upper ages of primary school going into secondary school? Yeah, so my... My dad lives in France, so he's my dad's always lived in another country. And so I've grown up with my mum and my brother. And so I was, yeah, spending a lot of my time just tripping from one to another. When I was a lot younger, every school holiday was basically where I'd go to France, be with my dad through the school period. I'd come back, I'd be with my mum. So yeah, I've got a, a good relationship with my brother obviously growing up with my mom a very very strong relationship with her as well and I think sport was just a massive part of my life in those early years as well I think I remember I used to have all sorts going on at this age I, I used to have kind of like problems with how like aggressive I was in a way like I was very 
like a quite heat a he- a, like heated person as a kid. I remember way back in like oh god in nursery, I, I remember being like sent home because I think I bit someone on the arm or something <laughs> like that. This is when I was like three years old. So I actually started playing rugby and started investing myself in sport, which was a great vice for me to, you know, let some of that emotion out. I'd say now I'm a, I'm a much more kind of controlled person. But yeah, in, in in primary, secondary schools, sport, sport, and kind of being relatively creative was just kind of what came naturally. I wasn't academic at all. It basically, once my my grades went back to my parents, it was like as long as the effort grade was there, it didn't really matter what what the the kind of attainment grade was. So yeah, I think sport as a whole, uh, and we'll get on to kind of. The, the depths of the sport I did when I was a bit older probably really shaped me as a person. I think just instilling that that discipline, that work ethic, that ability to work with a team, you know, understanding that you can't do everything on your own and there is benefit to, to kind of relying on the people around you. I think that was a massive influence on, on me kind of growing up. So how does a shy, creative, not-so-academic Ben approach GCSEs and the school system at large like how, how do you fit in, in in that time of your life during the GCSE years it was still just sport I would say there are things that did come naturally to me like academically like maths I'm I'm relatively good at there's there's two sides of it on one side just I just didn't really like learning in school which is strange now because I like now I spend ninety percent of my free time either listening to a podcast or reading or like I really enjoy trying to soak up and absorb knowledge. But in school that wasn't the case. I think in part because I probably didn't really like authority. This is just me like transparently looking back at myself as a kid. Didn't really like being told what to do. Part of it, um, and then. On the flip side, like I said, my my interests were just elsewhere. And I think I just had a lot of just a lot of maturing to do. It wasn't really until I kind of matured that I was able to channel my interests. I think prior to that it was just like, I'll do sport and the rest is just like dicking around basically, if I was to put a word <laughs> kind of to describe it. So yeah, I was quite like mischievous, but as GCSEs came around, I kind of just floated through them and wasn't really that fussed. As I said, sport was the main focus and I was kind of like, okay, I'm just going to focus on what I'm good at. I'm going to do, going to put my energy into sport. I was like captain of the rugby team. I would go and do like, you know, like hill sprints in my spare time. And this is when I was only like 14, 15. So I, I was really like super invested in it. So what I was invested in, I'm an all-in or all-out person. What I was invested in, I was really invested in. But if I didn't enjoy it or didn't like it, then I didn't really care. So sport became that advice for me to invest myself in. And then GCSEs, like I said, I kind of floated through. I was rowing at the time, so my school used to have quite a good like rowing system. We were by the river. That was a real turning point for me. I went from, if, if I were to pinpoint one Thing, one decision I made that's made me who I am today it was starting rowing because it's basically one of the hardest sports in the world and I remember when I first started I used to run with the slow kids at the back because I just didn't I didn't I didn't care 
I used to like if we had a run. I like I remember the co- I vividly remember the coach driving past in a car, and I was running with the slow people at the back, and he just shouted out the window, "So Smithy, what the hell are you doing?" And that was kind of the attitude I had. But then it started to become addictive. I think just getting addicted to seeing progress, and a- again, like that kind of like fiery side to me, if you will. I think you know pushing yourself physically for someone like that is quite like a satisfying and gratifying thing to just let some let some of that out. So yeah, like I said, I think that's where I, where I really started to kind of iron up the edges, if you will, and learn how to channel my energy and my interests. And then as time went on and that kind of like faded out, that those characteristics and those things just carried with me that discipline, that work ethic. But yes, sport was basically the thing that shaped me to be who I am now, just competing at a high level. I think that's why, again, the passion for learning how to figure out, you know, how to get the most out of people started with figuring out how to get the most out of myself. I think that's how most people learn. Like the best life coaches, for example, are probably the, the people that are most damaged because they've gone through the crap themselves. And now they're trying to, you know, they've had that reference experience and they're passing that knowledge on. So the same way, my interest for helping people now started with getting the most out of myself personally. And there was nowhere that you could read that in a book. There's no manual on how to become disciplined and how to get up every day and be accountable to seven other guys at 5.30 in the morning, you know, when you're going for a, an erg or for a whatever it was you were doing, rowing training. Um, and that was one yeah. of the questions I was going to ask is, what gave you the fulfillment from rowing and what were like the biggest lessons that you learned from that? But you kind of answered it, but could you unpack specifically more about the the work ethic that that provided? Yeah, I think this is why, obviously now looking back, I get a lot of young people, especially young men messaging me on social asking, you know, how do I get, how do I find that discipline, that work ethic? And for me, if you can start by gaining discipline in an environment where you have the accountability of other people until it starts to become a habit because in my eyes discipline is just a habit like you 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 become accustomed to making the uncomfortable choice rather than the comfortable choice so if you start in an environment where you have a reason and to to do it and people to kind of uh that are counting on you then the habit can start to become ingrained. So as I said, when I first started rowing, I was running with the kids at the back. When I finished rowing, I was wearing compression thermals at home and elevating my legs and like the complete other end of the spectrum. And part of that was just on one side habit, but I'm, I firmly believe that just as humans, we're built to walk uphill. We're built to, 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 to see progress. We thrive seeing on like through seeing progress whether that's in a working environment, in a sporting environment, I think there's something extremely innately fulfilling about just progression and moving forwards. So that's that has to be what I pinned down, that kind of addiction to rowing too, because it wasn't enjoyable. So there has to be something that was, you know, was, was hooking me and drawing me in. And I can only put that down to just the progression and seeing yourself get better, get fitter, get stronger, start beating people and, you know, start winning. I think as a whole, 
like competition it's not it's not the case for everyone but for me as even as a kid like when i was playing rugby in primary school like i loved just competition i loved that pressure you know turning up and having to perform i've always been someone that's very much into like this visualization and this was even as a kid and I, I, i spoke to a friend about this recently and it was i kind of used to visualize before i knew what visualization was as I said, I was a very creative person. And when I grew up, I used to think a lot. I didn't used to speak speak a lot. So I feel like I can kind of paint pictures with my mind relatively well. So I used to just, you know, think about when I made that big tackle and saw my friends and family out in the crowd and all this kind of stuff. Same with rowing, visualizing winning and all that other stuff. So there's there's a lot of different reasons why someone would get drawn into and attracted to a sport like that. But... As I said, if I hadn't done that, I think I would have been just continued on that mischievous path. So it's, it was it was almost like that funnel I needed to just that, you know, having a coach, having a team, having people depending on you to start building up the habit of discipline. And then over time, it just became natural, if you will. And like I said, if you were an all in or all out person or someone with an addictive personality, there's two ways this can go. You can start putting investing those in things that aren't serving you and things that are unhealthy, or you can make the choice to invest them in things that are serving you. For example, with, my, with the sport, it went too far. It became unhealthy. So um, there's, there's always a balance. But it's, this is how you know people get hooked on drinking or any other kind of... It's a vice in one form or another and you have to decide whether you want those things to be healthy unhealthy serving you or not serving you if you feel like you are the type of person that has to be investing yourself in something you have to know that you have to be self-aware enough to say okay well that's me that's who i am i'm going to invest that in a positive way and i'm sure a lot of the people listening can appreciate because the the sort of circles that i've found myself in as a cyclist triathlete like going to the gym there's those similar lessons which you can sort of draw out and you aggregate them across other sports. And men, myself and many of my friends were, were good friends with the rowers at uni as well. And I mean, I, I didn't know you rowed and it's really interesting hearing how those lessons were forged over that time, being yeah. forced into that uncomfortable environment, but actually seeing when you do see the benefits, you realise delaying that gratification and focusing on these longer term short term pain long term gain kind of thinking ultimately yeah. is what is what is rewarding i wanted to quickly but ask i think also just while, while, while go for it i just want to make sure we don't move on from that point there's something important i want to share but go go with it i, I was just, i was just going to ask out of pure curiosity what kind of level did you get to in rowing and did you do much racing i got to when i was set like 17 18 so this is the end of what you'd consider your junior years I got to a pretty high level to give you what well, I rode for England. This was back when I was 17, uh, 17 or 18 at the time. And basically, and this kind of ties into what I was going to say anyway, the three years, three or four years I spent rowing were all kind of building up towards one dream of mine, which was to win Henley Regatta and to kind of row for Great Britain and all this kind of stuff. So... I spent kind of three years working towards that once I did kind of start taking things seriously in my final year, which was kind of the culminating year. This is when it was all supposed to happen. This was when I learned a lot about 
to be honest, some of the lessons that I pass on to clients now are lessons that I learned the hard way in that year because I there was an enormous amount of pressure and expectation both on myself, from friends, from family. And the start of the year was going like perfectly well. Basically, I got sick. I got really sick. And I was, you know, doing well in trials. I was in the, the top boat. We won British championships at the start of the year. And then I got sick and to the point I had to stop rowing. And I went to, I was going to the doctors. They were doing all sorts of health checks because my white blood cell count was so high. They were testing me for bone marrow disease, leukemia, like to that extent, which I, like, I knew I didn't have. Well, I hoped I didn't have something like leukemia, but, you know, it's still, it's still worrying when they say they're taking these tests and it takes a couple of days to get the results back. You still do get concerned. But... I'm utterly convinced that that was a result of what was going on in my mind. And also the, 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 the amount that I was pushing myself. Like when you push yourself too hard physically, it, it does get unhealthy. It's like your body cannot sustain that much load and that much stress. Um, but I still think mentally was as much, it had as much of a part to play. And this was a crazy lesson for me because I took time away and I recovered. And at this point, I was like seeing, you know, my friends go on without me, seeing the dream kind of pass away. And I wanted to quit. And then I ended up, I decided, okay, I'm just going to carry on. But with like, just to just do it for fun. Not like absolutely no expectation like, I'm not even going to try and race at the end of the summer. I'm just going to go back, have fun with my friends and enjoy the process. And I ended up performing better than I ever have in, in my life because I was happy and I wasn't stressed out and there was no pressure. And I started doing better than I was before, which was just nuts. So I got my, my kind of improvement curve once I came back was astronomical and it was a massive, massive lesson for me just how far being in a good state of mind can take you, especially physically. I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate the power that your mind has on your body. And now this is, this even down to the point with clients now that I say, there is a point at which being too healthy becomes unhealthy. And a massive part of that is because of the stress that comes with it. So everything, like, a lot of healthy choices come at the cost of stress or, you know, let's say if you're fasting, if you're intermittent fasting and you decide you're not going to eat till 2 p.m., but you spend from 10, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. with your mind closer to the fridge than you do on your day, then it starts to become unhealthy, regardless of what it says on paper or in the research about health, how healthy fasting is. I can ca categorically tell you that it's not going to be good for you long term if if that's the way you live and lead your life. And even down to, you know, giving up sugar or foods that are quote-unquote unhealthy for you. If you say no every time and you let those cravings linger in the back of your mind and you never address them, there comes a point at which, you know, just having the Reese's Pieces and getting on with your day would have been healthier for you because the stress in your mind is eating away at you and that manifests in your physical being. So it is actually, it's not me just saying like it could be unhealthier for you. It actually is unhealthier for you because of your mental state. And again, these are things that I learned back in those rowing years, which were 
yeah, great lessons to be learning at a young age. I still kind of, it was a soul destroying year because my friends went on to win Henley, which was my dream. And that was the boat that I was once in. But at the time it crushed me. This was like a real, a real low. Um, but looking back on it now, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me because on one side, I'd probably still be rowing now if I want Henley, which is a very different life that you, you know, if you choose that life, it's a full commitment to to the cause. But also, like, just the lessons that were learned from that process, especially about kind of health and getting the most out of yourself, were priceless. You can never, you can't read that. As you said before, you can't read those things in books. Um, whilst I've done a lot of research and read a lot in books, every like 90% of the advice I give to people through coaching is through messing up myself <laughs> and finding out the hard way. It's almost just a challenge of how quickly you can iteratively mess up and then learn to then yeah, develop sure. an understanding as fast as possible. It's interesting mm. you mentioned about the, the balance and the sustainability and getting yourself personally to a healthy, happy place from which then to operate in, in any capacity, really. It's not just with the rowing, but you get yourself to a place where you are able to be the most effective athlete you are rather than mm. stressing too much on the marginal gains of hitting your macros precisely right and sleeping for an exact number of hours per night, which in theory, as you say, you tick the boxes of doing these things, but if you're over-worrying about it, then also your cortisol's going to be through the roof and all, all these other processes, which I don't know. I'm not a biologist, <laughs> but you know, yeah, yeah. It, it speaks to exactly but there's a, what I tend to say to people. One, there's a big difference between what's good on paper and what's good in real life. Also, I don't know if you've heard of the 80-20 rule, and it basically says that 80% of your progress comes from 20% of your actions. So if you focus on those, you know, those 20%, which are basically the, the basics, if you do the basics and you do them well, then that will take, that will give you 80% of the progress. And, but if you spend too much time, effort and energy on the 80%, that only gives you those marginal gains. And that comes at a cost of the stress and the pressure and all that kind of stuff. You end up making less progress than you would have otherwise because it starts to compromise on the basics. It's like if you were to just turn up to the gym five days a week and nail your workout, that would take you much further than if you started focusing on the small marginal gains to the point that you miss one workout a week. You're now compromising on the 20%, the basics, you know, the fundamental stuff that's helping you make progress because you went too far with the marginal gains. So it's, and that can be applied to everything. I apply that every, each and every day. It's like, am I, is this amount of work going to start affecting, you know, my ability to make the fundamental basic decisions that are making the majority of my progress? And often the answer is no. So I have, uh, everyone has to kind of pull themselves back, but it's just, an, it's just like, I, when I was younger, I thought the more you put in, the more you get out. And the older I get, the more I realize that it's, that's, that's not true. Because, yes, you get out what you put in in like a you know a broad sense of the word, but working smart as opposed to working hard can take you a very long way. It's, it's diminishing returns past a certain point, isn't it? And 
I suppose yeah. I suppose it's okay for a professional who gets paid full time to ensure that everything is absolutely maximised to perform on race day. But for, but for most of us, like you say, doing doing twenty percent, nailing the fundamentals, which I think is one of the most important lessons I'm currently learning again. <laughs> Seems I keep yeah. being retaught this lesson. You know, you're trying to get back into habits in a new environment, and it's like you know, let, let me just nail the basics of getting a good routines and going to the gym every day and not worrying about you know taking creatine like i got to get to the gym first before i start worrying about all this supplementation stuff so it's really interesting i've i've had a i I remember vividly i had someone join and sign sign up to the programs and she i remember vividly she was like i was expecting there to be some kind of secret and i was like i'm really sorry to let you know but the secret is that there isn't a secret like if you're if you're looking for that small complex problem that's going to solve all your issues you're going to you're going to continue searching for that for the rest of your life because it doesn't exist it's it starts with the fundamentals and i think as i said this is something that i contend with i think we all do each and every day because you you we are conditioned to believe that the more we put in the more we get out but as i said now on one side it's about being effective with your time as opposed to the amount of time it's, it's that classic example of don't spend more hours awake than everyone do more with the hours that you are awake than everyone it's like for me for example if i if i'm tired super tired and it's like midnight and i know that eight hours aren't quite going to cut it so it's probably going to be more effective to lie in until 10 because the next day I'm going to have way more focus and way more energy and I'm going to make up those two hours throughout the day whereas if I just you know if if I push through set the alarm there comes a point which you you probably find yourself dawdling halfway through the day because you're just fatigued and obviously one off you can use adrenaline and coffee or whatever to get you through the day but on a macro scale, these things catch up with you. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's that classic example of just like learning how to get the most out of yourself. And that's not, that's not from doing the most. It's from just one being self-aware that like everyone's, everyone's different. That's the most important thing. Don't listen to me and copy what I do. Don't listen to anyone and copy what they do. There's kind of one of the biggest problems with social media now is you see what someone else does and say, like, oh, I'll do that and it will work in the same way for me. But unfortunately, one, you've got to really get to grips with who you are, what makes you tick, how to get the, me- the best out of yourself. And then, yeah, just like I said, try and, try and think about working smart sometimes rather than working hard. It's at the top of my notion half the time. So work smart, not hard. Precisely. I, so. I, think, that's, I think that's great advice. But I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about, because obviously we were talking about getting to that rowing journey and then all those lessons that sort of came out of that. But considering you're now a gut health coach and you were performing at that level, and I don't want to imagine how much volume you were doing in terms of training load, but it requires a lot of calories to not just wither away when you're doing that <laughs> much cardio and gym, right? What, what did your yeah. diet look like back back then? I, I used to really struggle to put on weight. I was a very, very skinny kid, like very, very. I used to be super self-conscious about it. My coaches used to always tell me, like, they used to weigh me every Saturday and, like, you've got to put on weight, you've got to put on weight. 
So I used to eat like 6,000 calories a day. My diet when I first was rowing at my peak was disgraceful. But I remember we were having building work on our house at one point. So our kitchen was in a caravan. We were using a caravan as a kitchen. And I came home from training. I sat in the caravan and my mum cooked this dinner for me. And it was it was three steaks, a whole tray of dough and wild potatoes, which is that potato with like cheese and everything, and a whole pack of broccoli. And to me, I was so hungry. I was like, it wasn't that hard to get down, but as I, I could just eat so much. And there was a period where I was, I was quite successful putting on weight, but the way I did it, and this isn't what I advise people to do now, and it goes against everything I advise, is right before bed, I'd eat a tub of these like little flapjack things. It's like chocolate caramel flapjack. It's like 1,600 calories. It was just, cal- it was just food to get calories to get in me. And I used to have that before I went to bed so that I could get get my calories in. But when you're sat on the water, you burn, you're training for three or four hours a day. It's, to some extent, you need Yeah, it. it's like, <laughs> how, else, how else do you do it? Because, I mean, even just speaking from the personal perspective, when I've done big weeks on the bike, you know, 15, 20-hour weeks, you do just need calories. And it's hard yeah. to... Because I've, as someone who eats a plant-based diet and tries to eat whole foods... There comes a point where mm. I'm like, now nah, just smash a pack of bourbons in the evening because it's it just yeah. means I don't wither away. But it's like, how would you even do that? As a whole, I, I ate very clean. So this that that flapjack example was was like a bit of a one off. As a whole, I used to eat super clean. I was very like conscious of being healthy: chicken, rice, potatoes, stuff like it was all very very clean. But knowing what I know now. I would focus far more on calorie dense foods, so especially healthy fats. I'd have just been naming peanut butter back if I if I went back in time now. I would carry a jar of peanut butter with me, and I would eat a whole avocado with every meal, and I would eat whole eggs and whole yogurt. As to improve my ability to coach, in the last year I've spent time animal based, pescatarian, vegetarian, plant based, dairy free, gluten free. I've done it all, but yeah, I I would stick to just a high fat diet. Um, and my coach used to say, like, why don't, you just, why don't you just eat a pizza to just get the calories in? And at the time, I was like, no, I want to be healthier, which is probably good. I like, I probably saved my health by not being just an idiot about what I ate, aside from the short-term period where I started getting flapjacks down me before I went to sleep. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. I, I find what, what particularly hits different is the uh, late-night bowls of cereal. <laughs> There's something about the taste that just it's different from what it is in the in the morning. Um, yeah, yeah. Not not to go down too too much of a tangent. Uh, if we take a look back at your your sort of personal life, it then comes to a decision. I suppose post A level, you've done the rowing, and as, as you mentioned, you were maybe fell ill and got back to a good level, but didn't do the Henley. So I guess that route in terms of becoming professional was that when that sort of closed the door and you chose uni where, where was that decision yeah so with rowing you when you go from you, the difference between junior and the next step up is under 23 so it's it's, it's a very large commitment but I actually decided, I continued rowing after school I went to Oxford Brooks University strictly to basically to row I was doing computer science at the time which didn't interest me and I just kind of recovered from my health as I said I remember deliberating over the decision for months whether I carry on right now. I was like, I won't live with myself if I don't give this one more shot and see if I can do this. But even still, 
my health was just suffering. I was getting tonsillitis every. Like, my health was these this year. Uh, coming back to you know like the psychology of, of things and the biggest lessons that I've learned, having seen my friends kind of achieve what was kind of my dream and that being a very basically depressing period of my life, I then went to Oxbrook strictly to row, and my health just continued to suffer. And I remember driving back from home and uh, because I couldn't uh, like could barely leave leave bed at some points in time. I had to have my tonsils out shortly afterwards. So I dropped out of Oxford Brooks the day before I was going to be charged tuition. Basically by coincidence, I went into the student office and I was like, basically like, get me out of here. How do I <laughs> how do I leave? Um and they're like, we need to do this today, otherwise you're gonna get charged tuition. So thank you, whoever looked over me that day, by forcing me to go that day. But then I left university and this is a really important part of my life to talk about because like we can talk about the good stuff now, but these years was where it was all made. Is this all 1920? Yeah, 19, 18, 19 into 20. So dropped out of Oxford Brooks and this is where I was hit rock bottom. I'd just gone to university, quit, quit rowing, health was atrocious, had to get my tonsils out. I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. A-levels weren't any good. It was like, yeah, th- that that is what I would consider, aside from when I had IBS, rock bottom. It's a different kind of rock bottom to when I had IBS. But, yeah, digging myself out of that hole was an interesting one. Um, I went, I did a, a, a gap here. I did a ski season and just went like bananas. I think because obviously I didn't, when I was rowing, I didn't, I didn't socialise at all. This was like a, a, a really fun, and I have a lot of fond memories from that gap year. It wasn't like, you know, I was just, I needed to just escape. And that's what it was. It was escapism. It was just escaping the world and going into this bubble that was, you know, filled with pleasure. And like I said, that was a great experience. That really opened me up socially. I was working behind a bar, so that's where I started to get a lot more social. I remember turning up and... Like, you know, I was just worried about even speaking to people. But then you work long enough behind a bar where you've got to speak to people and you've got students and parties and all this other kind of stuff. You get used to it when you throw yourself in at the deep ends. But then I I retook a lot of my A-levels during that gap year. So I was I flew home from the gap year to do an interview at Manchester University. I... I was redoing my A-levels whilst <laughs> party. I wasn't, probably wasn't in the best frame of mind. But obviously, I came back and had a couple of months to fully prepare. But I retook them and just got enough to, to go to university in Manchester, then did a foundation year in Manchester, and then basically kind of crawled my way up from there. But it was, like I said, I always have to remind people that what you see now is half the story because you think that in just the space of a couple of years, it was... The, the situation in my final year of rowing, like which was soul destroying, going to a university, dropping out, tonsils out, health was atrocious, gap year, redoing my levels, doing a foundation year, just to get onto a course at university, and that was like ground zero. So this is like not to kind of blow it out of proportion, but this is this is where you learn a lot in those tough years, and that's why I have absolute like absolute empathy for people that are that age because 
Like you don't have anything figured out. No one does. Well, some people do, but most people don't. Like you don't have any clue what you want to do. If I, if you told me back then that I'd be a gut health coach, I'd be like, you're bananas, mate. <laughs> so, yeah, it's important to remind yourself that most people that have been successful, just I, I'm very much someone that likes to study people that are successful. I think it's really interesting. And most of them have been through hardship in one form or another and that's what shaped them to be who they are now and so you go through all of that all that testing time all the lessons that you've learned during that period in your life but you finally made it you you get onto a course and if i've done my research correctly it was a uh, mechanical engineering uh, what was mm-hmm. the uni lifestyle like it was good that gap year kind of continued into my foundation year i just continued the fun and behind the scenes, I, the problem was I, I wasn't dealing with what was going on internally. So I think I was decaying away on the inside and also kind of mentally because I was just, you know, going down the path of escapism by just ha- by just having fun. Uh, and, I, and then I had a rude awakening when at the end of the foundation year, basically, if you didn't pass the foundation year, you didn't get onto the course and there was no retakes. You had to you had to do it. And I got my results back That's in the summer afterwards and they said I failed. And I was like, oh my God, my life is over. What have I done? And I looked through the grades and I found that there was one grade missing. And I called them up and I said, what's going on here? There's a grade missing. And they went through all the coursework papers and they found one without a name on it. And they sent me a photo and I was like, I was like it's mine. I was like, it's mine, it's mine. And thankfully, by the gift of God, whatever you want to call it, they marked it and they added it to my grade and it got me over by like like 1%, maybe even less. It just scraped me over. And that was when I sat there at home. I was like, you've just been given a gift. Like this, that was your your warning shot. Sort your, I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to swear <laughs> in the podcast, but you'll, you'll know what word I'm going to say. Because there's only so long you can go on that path before it actually starts to become destructive. So I'd had my fun. And as I, that, like, that was a very conscious decision to sort myself out. So I started going to the gym, investing myself in my health again. I was already going to the gym before, but like seriously going to the gym and getting back to kind of what was still very familiar with me, which is, you know, looking after myself and focusing on improving myself. But the course was great. Obviously, university as a whole, I talk about that. There's a, I was watching a recent podcast. It was the, the Diary of a CEO. It was an episode of the, a life coach. And they said that more than 30% of entrepreneurs um, are successful if they stay in their job in the early days of starting their business because it provides you support and a foundation. And for me, that was university. So... In those uni years, for three years, I had a student loan and a foundation in order to take risks and set up my personal brand and you know start growing my social media and figuring out what I wanted to do. So whilst I learned a lot, I learned how just like strictly kind of how to learn, how to retain knowledge which I couldn't do before. I used to, I literally told myself I was terrible at exams. And again, now that I'd learned so much about psychology, I was like, the minute you tell yourself you're good at exams, you're going to start getting good at exams. And I remember in the library again, very like vividly, I remember saying from this moment forwards, 
you don't make stupid mistakes, you are good at exams. And I used to like just embody that person because I used to just make stupid mistakes. I, I like could have done better in exams, but under the pressure, I couldn't. And from that moment forward, exams started going well. I got a U in mechanics at A-level and then I had a mechanics exam at uni and I was like, this is your shot to just prove to yourself that <laughs> you can do this and ended up getting an A there. And it was like, that's when the confidence started to build that, you know, things were kind of more within my control. But yeah, obviously at some point during that was when COVID happened in the latter years which is a whole other topic in itself, and I'll let you lead the conversation because I don't know where you want to go there. <laughs> no, it's just it's interesting to hear how when you sort of rediscovered the lessons that you'd learned from pushing yourself physically and the challenges of rowing, you were then able to pick that back up with the gym, and then because that becomes your mindset, you can then apply that to university and studying. And I really like what you, you picked up on there about the life coach on Diver CEO, where he says that you stay in your job or, or university. And that's something I've definitely found, not that I'm as successful as uh, where, where you got to, but when I talk to people about various things I've tried and failed in the last couple of years, when people are going out partying and, and living it up and or maybe just cruising through university, for me, it's an opportunity for three years or four years if you do a placement, whatever you're doing. It's an opportunity to try and fail many different things on the side because you've got so much free time. You've got a student loan, which obviously it's means-tested. It can be quite unfair. But it provides you with that opportunity whilst you're figuring things out, not just to take the the narrow, straight path to the end of the degree and then straight into the job. Like it yeah. allow, Especially if we're going to link things back, it allows a creative type like yourself to experiment and, like you say, build your, your personal brand and... Uh, when I was 21, like, if, if we met when, when I was 21 and you were 21, you'd be way ahead of where I was. Like, you've got a podcast, you, you, you know, you're, you're on the straight and narrow. When I was 21, I was still at the pub getting pissed up and I didn't really care. Like, so there's, I think it's important for, for people to not, just as, as a whole, not this isn't directed at you, but as a whole, not compare yourself to where you are in your journey compared to others because, you know, everyone has their time. And sometimes I firmly believe that if you're not where in a certain position in life, it's because there's a hoop that you've got to jump through that you haven't jumped through yet. There's a lesson that needs to be learned before you are ready for what's to come. And that's why you can find day-to-day in business. There comes a time where the business stalls and it's like it's because you're not ready yet. Something that had, There's something that has to take place before you are prepared and ready. So the second point that I wanted to touch on is just the time that it takes to build the right foundations, whether it's for a personal brand or for a business. And I know I found personally that you can picture it kind of like a slingshot. That the, the more time you give yourself to pull back the slingshot, whether it's through building your skills, you know, setting the right, like solid foundations, um, developing an audience through social media, the harder and the longer you can pull that back for before you set up a service or a business or something along those lines, the further that business has the potential to go. So that's where, once again, coming back to that foundation that you set yourself up with, if you can do that when you've already got a job or you've got you know, a student learning degree, 
the risk is far, far lower because you you can't, if you have no money and no way of paying the bills, you can't just be, you know, reading books and doing stuff for free. Like I posted content on social media for three or four years without making any money from it, nothing. And I couldn't do that if it was my, like if I was only able to make a career of it because I had the foundation of a degree and a student loan that allowed me to post for free for three or four years so that when I got out, I could make something of it. So it's like, whilst I think you, that it's really important to note that there's, there's, there's two sides to the argument, whether or not you go to university, uh, it's very person to person dependent. And that's, that's really kind of important to state. But if you're not sure, either getting a job or a degree that has broadly applicable skills. So it's not super specific. If you pick a super specific degree, you're kind of like, you know, you're you're narrowing what you can potentially do with it afterwards. But if you pick something broad, psychology would be a great one. I had a client recently I spoke speaking to who just didn't know what they wanted to do, but they were doing a psychology degree. And I said to them, like, you're in a good spot because psychology applies to basically everything marketing business coaching like everyone needs to know and understand psychology so if you can set yourself up with again that really strong foundation and build your skills uh, whilst i'm not an engineer now there are things that i learned during that engineering degree that apply to my business and you know it's just, it's just a case of building up as many skills as you can and if you can do that when you don't have the need to make money from it, you are in a very fortunate and a privileged position. And I know lots of people spend time at university. A lot of people, if I was, there was one approach to university I would advise against, it's going, choosing a specific course or a course that you really don't enjoy and just wasting those years having fun. Because then you are leaving with debt and you're not leaving with skills. So it's like, what are you leaving with? Yes, life experience, great, which is important, but there's cheaper ways to get life experience than to go to university, that's for sure. Because university is not cheap. And it's important to think about that because I think it would be, if we had the exact figures, I think a very large portion of people would, do, would be doing just that. And it's what I started doing. It was just going to university and I just started just having fun. It's because it's great fun. There's some of the best years of my life were at university. But if you can, if, if you're someone that's listening and you're driven and you want more from life, use the years that you have whilst you're young. Because I speak to a lot of people that don't have that opportunity anymore. They've got kids, they've got a family, they, you know, they're, they, they're getting what they feel like is older my metric of old is a lot different is very different to what most people's is i think that if you're you know if you're in your 30s you are not old that's for sure um but people feel like you know life's getting away from them but if you're if you're in your like 20 early 20s you will kick yourself when in 10 years time if you didn't if you didn't you know realize how much of an opportunity you have because for most people, not for everyone, not for everyone. Like if you're privileged enough to know that you're never gonna run out of food, that one simple fact, 
if whether it's through your family or you can just go back home and eat with them or like some if you are privileged enough to know that you never have to worry about running out of food then use that you know you you have a platform to take risks because you're never gonna you know you're not gonna starve if you are in a position where you're having to fight for your life like it's important to understand the demographic of the people listening the likelihood is the people listening for the most part aren't going to be that person but if they are it's, it's a completely different situation and i don't want to undermine that but having said that if you are in that position understand and realize that there's never going to be a better opportunity that's why for me it's always a balance because your younger year, there's a, I think Alex or Mosey, I don't know if you can see his content, basically said, when I was 20, all I wanted to be was a millionaire. And when I was a millionaire, all I wanted to be was 20. So it's, it's a fine balance between kissing away your younger years and setting yourself up for your future. But I think if you are going to set yourself up for your future, there is no better time to do it than when you're young and when you don't have as much responsibilities. So whether you do that through a job or through university, that's personally the path that I would recommend. This is probably one of the most common questions I get asked. So I thought it was worth us hovering here to answer that. And for you yourself, in the origins of building your personal brand, how did the beginnings of the skills required to produce content, uh, whether it's short-form content on reels with cameras, cinematography, script, um, copywriting, that sort of skill set, which obviously your creative temperament lends itself towards that. But how did you first start picking that up and, and what was the spark that led you to begin? So as, I, as we kind of started on, the creative side of things came naturally to me. I remember when I was rowing, I used to make a rowing video for when we used to go on like a training camp, I bought a GoPro, especially when I was sick, I, I made a video for, cause I was on training camp and I couldn't row. So I had a GoPro and I made a video. So like editing kind of came relatively naturally to me. And a part of this is like, what I find comfortable on social media now is not speaking, is editing a video where I don't have to speak to anyone. I can go back to my naturally quiet, introverted self edit my video, post it, and like, yeah, exactly, and just send it out and provide value for people. The speaking side of things is something that I've worked on tirelessly for the last four years. So it's a case of like leaning into my strengths and trying to, you know, bring up my weaknesses. But I don't know how deep you want me to go with just how this all kind of came about, but I made a decision, basically the year COVID happened, I decided, because... There's, there's too much to cover. So I had basically, it's probably best to start with the, my journey with IBS. Because so is, when, when you first started developing IBS, was that in tandem? Like, did you not create the personal brand before that or did it just transform into that? So this is where the two kind of coincide. So okay. I was posting on social media prior, but when I got... IBS. I used to have like 10,000 followers on Instagram. So I used to, I don't, not on any other platforms. And this is when in a period of time where it was probably a bit easier to do that. Um, I say, I say that it's, a, it's very easy to grow on social media now. It was like, it was easy for four or five years ago. And then it got really hard for three, for three or four years. And now it's gotten easier again. But I basically developed 
IBS when I had like a bit of a personal brand, like 10,000 Instagram followers. And was that, that was just sharing it. your advice on various mindsets? A lot of that was talking about um, just health and well-being. I also used to, and I kind of like, not feel a bit ashamed, but I used to model back when I was in uni. And this was basically, in part, uni is just expensive. And I, and I like, if you don't have support from people, from family, like, it doesn't even cover your living costs in a lot of cases. Like, my maintenance loan didn't cover my rent and my... So, I ended up just through, like, it's that's a, a story for another day. But I ended up modeling. So, I was posting a lot of, like, creative content as well. From Whether I... If, even if I was, like, on a shoot, I was, like training a lot so it was kind of like all kind of tied into one just my the nutrition and exercise side of things a massive part of that was just getting in good physical shape and then that led to other content so it was kind of that was kind of along the lines of what i was posting about that was a path that wasn't wasn't meant for me and i kind of knew it wasn't meant for me anyway it was it was just a stepping stone really but it's kind of important to touch on that point, like a massive part, that's, that really did prepare me for being able to be in front of a camera. That's definitely a skill that was learned in that kind of phase of my life. And then and then IBS happened, which to be honest, I talk about IBS on a lot of, on a lot of podcasts and a lot of videos and all my social media content. It's all I talk about all day. So I might as well just give you like the short story so that people have context, but I don't think it's necessary for us to deep dive into it here. Basically, I developed a bit of what you could consider like a a minor imbalance. uh, Like for the first time ever, I had like bloating and I was in Turkey at the time. I was away and this kind of developed while I was there. Wasn't really sure what was going on, but it was super mild. I came back and saw the doctors about it and they basically gave me an extended course of antibiotics the specific antibiotic was called metronidazole and the doctor said like oh your symptoms are pretty persistent i'm going to give you an extended course so so 10 days instead of seven days and yeah long story short it really messed me up i kind of went against my better judgment everything i kind of read and saw told me not to take them decided to take them and within the space of a matter of days I was bloated to the point I looked six months pregnant. I had eye floaters to the point I couldn't see. My skin was irritated so I couldn't sleep properly. I was like super scared and I thought, okay, when the antibiotics stop, this is going to wear off. I just, I was sleeping 16 hours a day. The wear, it literally knocked me for six. But I, in my head, I was like, okay, it's just, it's just for the cause of the antibiotics. I was advised not to stop them because you're advised not to stop them. And then, um, and then, yeah, once, once that was said and done, the damage actually was kind of not irreversible because I did reverse it in a very long <laughs> period of time, but short term, like the damage was done. And I went back to the doctors and the original doctor who prescribed them wouldn't see me. He passed me on to a separate doctor. He was actually like in the doctor's surgery and I had an appointment and he found that kind of like spoke to him on the phone. And then all of a sudden when I arrive, he doesn't want to, he's not the person seeing me anymore. And they kind of said, yeah, we're sorry this has happened. It looks like it's IBS. Here's a repeat prescription of laxatives for life. Kind of basically go away and mask the symptoms. And thankfully... As I said, I'm someone that's very passionate about health and well-being. I was pretty well informed 
um, at this time, I, alongside university, because I kind of knew that I was going, I had two parallel paths, the engineering side and this nutrition side. So, so I was doing a diploma in nutrition on the side. So this is where I was, I was kind of finishing up that. I was writing my book kind of in this period of time. I was well informed on nutrition in the nutrition space. And then this happened. So I was fortunate enough to be in a position where I was, you know, uh, had the tools to take an alternative approach. But yeah, like I said, that that's that's really where, you know, the story starts for, for live my coaching platform because it really was a difficult thing to to get through, especially when no one really understands. You were kind of led to believe there's no solution. It's very tough spot to be in when you get a health issue and you're told there's no solution. And yeah, it really did compromise my life. Like I said, in that year of university, I, I was sat down in the library and I had eye flow. I remember my eye flow just to the point I literally couldn't see it. it made me feel physically sick. And I had to go outside and like lay on the grass because I couldn't work, I couldn't see anything. And everything I ate, maybe like six months pregnant, it, it kind of like turned my life upside down. So then COVID rolled around and I decided to just go dark on social media and just focus on myself. So this was, this was really, like we'll gloss over this. This was the period where I actually addressed the issue myself through just a natural approach. If, if you want to find out more about kind of how I did this in my story, you can go to my YouTube. There's loads of content there so that we don't have to go into too much detail here. But yeah, that was again on the point of like, you know, building up resilience. It cannot be underestimated how much resilience you can develop when these issues are happening and you know that you can't solve them straight away, but you have to just kind of like, you have to figure out how to just go about your day and deal with it. And mentally, I think that definitely made me just, I feel like I developed a bit of an ironclad mind in that, in that period of time. But also again, just whilst we're on the kind of mindset discussion, what goes on in your gut affects what goes on in your mind and what goes on in your mind affects what goes on in your gut. So there's strong research to say that issues residing in your gut lead to anxiety, depressive behaviors. So I had depression but it was out of my immediate control because it was a result of a physiological issue in my body. So until I overcame the physiological issue, the psychological issue persisted and remained. So, yeah, like I said, I kind of addressed that situation during that COVID period. And, in 2020? Yeah. And then basically it kept rolled into my final year of university and they decided to go fully online. So I decided to do that final year from home because I was still kind of like recovering. I also didn't want to waste my money just being locked down potentially because I had a studio apartment on my own that year because that was kind of be the, going to be the year where I really focused on my final year and stuff like that. So I would have just been on my own. So I thought I'm just going to do it from home. Uh, my my mum lives in Wales at that point. When I went to university, we lived closer to like, you know, civilization. But then when I went to university, uh, so that was prior to university, sorry, she lived closer to civilization. But when we went to university, both me and my brother, she decided to move to Wales because it was kind of out of the way and it didn't really matter what we were doing. So that was where I did my final year. And this is like, I love Wales, but where my mum lives in Wales, the, the closest house is a mile and a half away. It's like to go to the shop, you've got to drive for 25 minutes. It's not, 
like I don't I, I don't haven't really met anyone my age so uh nearby so yeah this is where I'd, I'd overcome IBS and this is kind of where a lot of things happened my social media my book my the coaching platform the end of my degree like setting myself up a bit more financially I kind of I've made a video about this I sacrificed eight months of my life and just worked 24 hours a day seven days a week pretty much for eight months and just that's where I was posting once a day on TikTok at the start of the year so obviously a school year a university year starts in September by the time I got to December and January this is when I set up I create a mood board for my of my goals for the year I, I went into that year I just wanted to be really intentional about what my goals were and be ambitious as hell basically because as I later found out and has as I continue to find out now the more the more ambitious you are you, you the more you prioritize what it's going to take to get there and you start cutting out the fluff so I set out a mood board and that had 100,000 followers on TikTok I had zero at the time I'd never made a post and uh, alongside that, a bunch of other goals, including like best-selling author of The Fasted Lifestyle. And I, that's, like I said, that year was just very intentional. And yeah, it's, it's incredible what, what can happen when you, you are so focused and you have such a kind of clear direction and you, I say sacrifice, but I think invest in yourself is probably the better word. If you can just allocate a period of life where you invest in yourself. So that alongside good luck and you know a stroke of luck and good timing because tiktok was it was a good time to grow on tiktok so I, so i you know was fortunate enough to to kind of hit the timing right with that and then by the time reels rolled around i'd already been making a tiktok every day and as I continue to find out throughout my social media journey, there are op- there are always opportunities to capitalize on one platform or another. And at that point in time, people still as- associated the real type content with 14-year-old girls dancing. And people were scared to post it, so it was a very desaturated space. So I was like, I don't care what anyone thinks, I'm just gonna go all in. When when <laughs> um, was this specifically? Can you kind of remember? This this was um so my final so I graduated, did my final year, and then I actually went to Ibiza, believe it or not. Uh, I think in part to get some of my social skills back. So, book to give you a timeline of that year. Uh, book launched in February, then February twenty twenty one. Like, yeah, then my final year happened. Then um, this was where I kind of transitioned out of university. I had a good platform. By this point, I had like a hundred K plus on TikTok. I had, it's around that point on TikTok. Instagram was still struggling. It was still like 20 K. And then throughout that summer, it was like on one side, I was intending on just having a break, but I realized another lesson that sometimes there's, there's more than one way to be productive. And one of the best ways to be productive is by surrounding yourself with the right people. So I went, probably did the least work I've ever done, but that summer I spent in Ibiza just through meeting people to also being in a good place, like coming back to the point of content, I was in a good state of mind. I was happy, I was healthy, and the, the content I was posting as a result did well because I didn't look like I'd just, you know, sometimes now I've been 
smashing the laptop and I don't really look that presentable when I'm on camera and that affects your content. So, so yeah, summer in Ibiza, this is when I was figuring out how to set up my coaching platform. And then at like about halfway through that summer, Instagram launched reels. So I, that's it really that it's odd because it, now, now because reels are the, obviously seeming to be the primary type of content that yeah. people consume. It seems like they've been around forever, but it was so it was a summer of last Reels year. Reels is very new. Reels is very new. Yeah, it, summer of last year. Yeah, because they because TikTok were taking their attention. This is where if, if anyone's in the social media space or as a whole, even in the marketing world, like it's it's really important to just follow where people's attention is. So when back when I was making TikTok videos, that's where people's attention was, and then. Instagram launched Reels, and initially, it, you know, it took some time to build up some speed, but then people's attention shifted to Reels. And obviously, there's billions of people on Instagram, so even if there's not, even if everyone's not watching it, if it's desaturated and you're posting, it's still a good opportunity. So yeah, that's when my Instagram grew up to like 70k, and TikTok was up at like 150k or something like that, and this was rolling into. Throughout that summer was where I kind of set, laid out the foundations to launch my coaching platform. Because there's, there's so many, like, it's, it's impossible not to tell the story without telling all the angles. There's so many, so many boxes or hoops that had to be jumped through in order to get there. So in that final year, I was day trading crypto. And this is what gave me the funds in order to lay the foundations to set up my coaching platform through that summer. So then I... Went to Ibiza, I, to be honest, I just isolated myself and most people had through COVID for an extended period of time. So I had fun, let my hair down, content was doing well and I set up the foundation for the coaching platform. And then once that summer, I kind of like, I, I left Ibiza early because the coaching platform, everything was going super well and I had to get back to somewhere where I could just focus on it. So... Yeah, by that by the time I launched my coaching platform, obviously social media was doing in a much better position. And content wise, short form videos was where it was at. It's where everyone's attention was. Even now YouTube shorts it's it's the future, if you will, because it in part because it fills your whole screen. Because there's you know, we're and I suffer with it daily. This is a kind of separate conversation that might be good to touch on, is that a massive part of what social media is is our next fix of dopamine and the more of that screen that the content fills the more dopamine and you know the, if it's a video instead of a photo that's more you know sensitization like there's more what's the word stimulation so that's why that's why it's so popular it's because there's kids now with a short attention span would rather do that than look at photos and that's that's the unfortunate. That's just how it is. You can't. There's nothing we can do to to really change that. But that's the way kids consume content. So it's like, given uh, that isn't going to change, you've got to then reach those people and direct them to something that's meaningful and has value. Because you could contribute to this these reels and these new trends in an unhealthy way. But it's like rather than saying, "Oh, I don't agree with the fact that everyone's attention span is going down," and I don't agree with how these big corporations are just ruining our dopamine systems. Yeah. So actually, I can leverage this for a net benefit for people in the way that you've done yeah. with producing um, valuable content. So, 
For sure. It's like if 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 kids are going to be consuming this content anyway, might as well give them something that's that they can take away from it. And in part, you have to play the game because of the way the algorithms work. And you know, in order to make your content perform well, you have to like the certain again hoops you have to jump through, and they're not always going to benefit the end user. It's just going to continue to shorten their attention span because everyone's in a bid to, to, to get that attention from them. Fundamentally, that's what social media makes its money from, how much attention and focus they can take from the, its users. The longer you spend on the app or the longer a piece of content makes you spend on the app, the more it's prioritized. So that's, that's how social media works because the longer they can keep you on the app, the more ads they can run, the more money they can make. But if there's, there's, there's two sides. There's, there's the greater fight for you know, protecting young people's health and well-being, which I think the older generation have a, a moral obligation to look after because these young people can't make those decisions. It's the older, older generation that really have the ball in their court, but I don't think they're doing much about it by the looks of it. So it's, I think it's, it's kind of our generation that are a bit more conscious of these things that I think will be able to enforce meaningful change. But otherwise, it's just a case of giving them something that they can take value from. One thing I wanted to to pick up on from what you've just mentioned about the process of building live, I guess, the the app that you, that you now have. When you say building, do you mean yourself? Because obviously it's an app, so you have to program it. Were yeah. you were you contracting out? Yeah, okay, that was basically <laughs> so, so you're using um, online platforms to basically get developers and sell them your idea and then they obviously pay them to do that. Fleshing out, what is an idea up here of drawing on your experiences of your struggle with IBS and kind of mapping it out as you've done, getting it onto paper and then translating that into something real and tangible? What what does that even look like? To be honest, I couldn't describe how this all came together because in part, it's just a case of taking one step at a time for a very long time. Uh, I, I think no one knows what step 50 is when they're on step two but the analogy i always use is that you can drive a car at night with the headlights on for 100 kilometers whilst only seeing 10 20 meters in front of you so it's like as long as you can see and master the next step then you'll be just fine so there are a lot of companies and platforms and people that help you bring your service to life through software so they're like in my, in my case, I work with a company that helps with the development side of... So it, dep- it depends on what what area you're in. But you think nowadays, especially with technology being as prominent as it is, even if you wanted to make a T-shirt brand, there are companies out there that can take care of... In, the, in some cases, for a T-shirt, take care of everything. You send them your design, and they they're like they <laughs> you put the product on their website or your website and it just sells and you don't have to do anything all you have to do is promote it so there is a massive cut as they go up everyone takes their cut because this is where so many with the rise in social media there are so many content creators and influencers that don't have the means to make money but if you can give them the means then both of you can make money so it's like in my case the there there is a development company that take a revenue share from what we make so it's like they've given me the means and they and we both are able to make money from it because I'm not a developer. But that's and that's the case with in many industries 
with many different ideas. It's, you know, it's finding someone else that has the skill set that you don't necessarily do. And I think that's much easier now than it ever used to be because on the outside, you think, oh, he found a developer and has had to pay him to, to do this all from scratch. But I think, depend, again, depending on the industry and depending on whether or not there is a platform or software or service out there, there might be an opportunity for you to find someone that can help you do what you can't. That, you know, because they're doing it at scale, you don't have to pay them a lot because maybe they're doing it for other people. Maybe they're, you know, like the T-shirt example. They haven't had to get the systems in place just for you. They get those systems in place for everyone. And as such, it's very cheap for them to do so, meaning that, you know, it's, it's, it's a mutually beneficial relationship between you and them. So if, I, if there was an example, I could, tell, I could provide like recommendations based on my knowledge of what is potentially out there. But that's, that's the process that I went through. And then in the case of taking something from an idea and actually creating it, I always say that like ideas have a shelf life. You know, when you get that harebrain idea that you think could be really valuable or is that, you know, that eureka moment. I think if you can capitalize on that energy you feel, that excitement, that passion, that you, like thinking that you can provide value to the marketplace or to people. If you if if you leave that idea on the shelf for too long, it will it will fizzle away. That's what I find, and that's what I find in examples all throughout the world in the business space. So if you have that idea and you decide that you want to commit to it, it's simply just a case of getting started, and once again, one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, for an extended period of time, because. If I looked back almost exactly a year from now and you, you, you told me that I'd done what I'd done in this year, I'd have been like, no way, I, didn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know how. But the point is, you know what step five is when you're on step four. And then when you're on step five, you know what step six is. So it's just you, you don't have to know what the next 50 steps are. You, just, you only need to know the next one. So it's a case of just putting one foot in front of the other also depending on the the magnitude of what you're trying to build it's just a case of just just giving it everything you've got and not stopping that's literally what it is it's like people there's a statistic about podcasts it's like if you can make it past the fifth podcast i think you're like significantly more likely to succeed as a podcast because most people fall off in the first five this is really important if you're doing something worthwhile then there is a barrier to entry. Otherwise, it would have already been done. If it was that easy to do, it would have already been done. So if what you're trying to do is really special, you've got a hope that you have to jump through if you're going to make it work. And in an ideal world, the harder it is to build, the more likely there is that you're not going to have competition or that you're actually doing something special. So you have to know and commit to the fact that I'm doing something that's worthwhile, that's meaningful, that's, that's tough to build, but that's just a reflection of the fact that it's valuable and that it works. So in my case, that's what I told myself throughout that process. It's just that I think there's a quote that says like the air at the top of the mountain being thin. If you can make it to the top of the mountain, the higher the mountain it is, the less likely you're going to meet people up there because it's, it's hard to breathe. And 
it's just that it's like the higher the barrier to entry in in some ways the better and i remember thinking about this early on in my kind of like entrepreneurial journey it's like i want this to be hard because that means people can't copy me like when people talk about me now like sharing what i do i say that i don't care because like most people would just won't want to copy me and by the time they did we're going to be so far ahead that it's not going to matter because it's obviously in my case it's something that i don't think many people are going to be as passionate as me about because i've suffered with issues myself that's why whatever you're trying to do i firmly believe that you should try and pursue your passions because i see so many people get caught on the hamster wheel of trying to chase more and better and success and all means of the world but if you come to terms with the fact that fulfillment doesn't come from the destination it comes from the journey i think it's one of the best things that you can discover in your life and i found this because i wrote down in a journal every day for a year 100,000 followers on t- on instagram that year 2021 i didn't make it that year but this year i did and i remember sitting in my car and like refreshing my screen and it hitting 100k and for, for about five seconds, I was like, wow, we made it. And then I said, right, 200 next. And I, and I paused. This was probably one of like the biggest lessons I will ever learn in my life. I just, I paused and I rationalized it. I was like, wait a minute. You've been chasing this goal thinking that it was going to provide you with fulfillment for basically for five years. And one of those years, you wrote it down every single day. And it brought you five seconds of pleasure. And then then it passed. And then the mountaintop just moved further away. So now I have like a very stoic approach about it, especially with like the coaching platform. I am as a whole with goals. You have to stop, remove sentences from your vocabulary that sound along the lines of I will be happy when I will be fulfilled when you have to be happy now because it's not going to come later. So in the case of like my work, it's a case of enjoying every single day and finding the fulfillment from the process rather than the final destination, because you're not, you're not going to find the fulfillment that you're just, you're hoping for at the top of the mountain. They call it gold medal depression. People try to win a gold medal for sometimes their entire life and they get it. I'm sure they're bloody happy on that stage or when the national anthem is going off, but then they get depressed because it doesn't last very long. And that's why, again, with me, I know that in the gym, I used to be a skinny kid and all I want, I used to dream towards, you know, like having a certain physique. And then this year I had a really weird moment where I kind of, I didn't, I, I didn't want to get any bigger. I didn't like looking any bigger. And then I was like, oh, I've kind of like, I kind of made it. And I was like, what's the point in training anymore? Because, and I, and I ended up getting bored and I stopped training because it wasn't about the physique. It wasn't about 100K Instagram followers. It was about like what it provides and the actual meaning, purpose, or, you know, the future fulfillment you can get from it. Because sometimes you do have to jump through certain hoops that you don't want to jump through. And they're hard and it hurts. And you have to go through them because you want what comes afterwards. Not everything's going to provide you with fulfillment and happiness. If you can find things that do, then great, but not everything will. 
but then once you do find so like it's just don't fall into that trap of always looking for more because you see you go to the south of france you see guys on them their big boats and i can tell you they're not happy because all they wanted was a big boat and they got their big boat and then they realized that their big boat isn't going to make them happy again it this all come all of these things like i'm, I'm not some guru i'm not like a genius as i said i wasn't academic in school these are all things that i just learned through life experience and have, have just tried to be as i said i'm a thinker so i think about these things a lot but this one specifically i think everyone should ever anyone and everyone that's listening to this should really take away with them and, and, and actually think about like are you waiting for the moment where you feel happy and fulfilled and it only took for me finding that out on a larger scale five years of work writing it down every day for five seconds of fulfillment way up that opportunity cost but that's if that's what you're doing it for if, if i was only doing it for those five seconds that would be the worst investment i've ever made of my time in my life it's only really been the last six months that i've truly come to terms with that fact and so you've been able to find something which provides you with enough meaning beyond yourself that purpose that drives all of the effort and late nights and i mean the eight month grind that you were talking about just to get this thing off the ground and how stressful that must have been that supersedes the challenging aspects of it and is satisfying but not in a way that makes you happy it's like it's something that jordan peterson says about meaning being happiness being an inferior life goal like what's the point in pursuing happiness because it's a fleeting feeling what you need instead is something that you are working on that is challenging that will hopefully in the long run provide you with meaning and can help other people and i mean it sounds exactly like what you've been doing and i mean clearly the lessons that you've learned from your own experience are macro lessons that lots of people also have come to the same conclusion so they're, they're it was true. Jordan Peterson that, that had that quote about we're built to walk uphill and that's one that really stuck with me and that's why I found in COVID everyone thought that they would get time to do all the things that they never had time to do but a lot of people realised that that's not how we're meant to live like you're meant to have something that you're striving towards again obviously we can't generalise there are people that are fighting for their lives i always refer back to maslow's hierarchy of needs if, if people don't have their basic needs met the base of the pyramid like it's a different conversation we're having a very different conversation so we're talking about people that do have those needs met so people that are looking to optimize and i think it's a very cowardice reasoning to throw onto people like you're not allowed to feel that way because there's people who are suffering with worse it's all relative, it's all perspective. So it's just important for us to highlight the fact that, you know, ad address the demographic that we are that we are intending to, to speak to. At every level, your feelings of happiness, fulfillment, joy, pleasure are just relative to what you're accustomed to. Like if, if you're used to riding jet skis all day, you know, like it doesn't provide you the same pleasure as someone that rides it for the first time. Or if someone, you know, I think even Steve Barlow talked about this when he had like no money and he found money behind the back of a chair in like a chip shop. What would be required to provide that same fulfillment for someone who's well off? 
would have to be insurmountable, uh, insurmountably greater. So it's all relative. So I, like I, th- I think it's a cowardice move to just say, so it's the classic one, oh, there's people starving in Africa. It's like, well, yes, there are people starving in Africa, but that's, that doesn't mean that you cannot feel unhappy, you know, because uh, because everyone's in a, in a wildly different situation. Yeah, like the, to an extent, there is a need for reflection and gratitude and perspective, but not to a toxic extent which invalidates that person's feelings because they only know the context they exist within. And like you say, in terms of the hierarchies, of needs and where someone is at they're, they're going to experience emotions on a spectrum wherever they are on that and so i think one of the biggest problems we face now is, is addressing that in this in with postmodernism and this abundance of comfort is like how do we generate meaning because say 100 years ago the meaning would be a forced thing you would have to wake up early and mm-hmm. plant the potato seeds and go out to the farm and you'd have to work to live now you don't have to work to live. We still require that within us to generate meaning. So we, we have to make it up ourselves. And that's obviously the... It's really interesting. Yeah. It's really the point we were about. making before. It's, it's, it's a balance because it's our duty to think about those people starving in Africa. The perfect example would be, I'm not going to vote because my vote doesn't matter. Well, yes, your vote does matter because if everyone had that, that train of thought, then you know we wouldn't get anywhere. So, so we do have an obligation to think about these things, but it's more so just that you know you shouldn't cast cast away your feelings because of it. But like, yeah. I think it's a really interesting point that you made there because as a whole, like in terms of that, with like health and well being, the practices that work for our health and well being are quite literally where we've just turned back the clock to how we were evolved. <laughs> to you know to function cold showers intermittent fasting um well blue light glasses so that we align ourselves with the sun these lamps that wake you up with sunlight like we are in the grand scheme of human history so even if we just look around this podcast mic and it's kept like these things are very new in the grand scheme of human evolution we are not yet designed according to the world that we live in we're not we are designed to function in the world probably hundreds of years ago. So that's where I hadn't really thought about it from a fulfillment point of view. Like we are designed to generate our fulfillment from what used to be a necessity, whereas now it's no longer a necessity. Food for thought on that one, for sure. Precisely. And so we, we could, I'm sure we could talk all day about that sort of meaning and mindset and all those really interesting almost philosophies you know it goes right to the core of, of thinking and lifestyle but i kind of wanted to turn to so you've built the app and it's been running for some time now coming into this year more recently yourself as an individual you've moved away from home you've moved to somewhere thousands of miles away to live on your own to continue working on this project as a 24 year old how has that been for you yeah, so as of the age of like, 16, I've been pretty independent. Like, I've been cooking my own meals since the age of six. Like, uh, just the trivial things. Like, I've been independent for a very long time. Basically, when I moved to university, as I said, with my parents moving away when we went off to university, that was kind of like, that was moving out. That was moving out of the house at the age of 
of 18. So I think living on my own and taking care of myself is something that's very, very deeply ingrained by the, at this point. Still learning by the day how to navigate the situation that I'm in now because I'm probably ahead of where I thought I would be by a good couple of years. And a big part of that has just been, you know, as I said, I'm a thinker, taking time to just really, you know, keep a level head and rationalise what's going on. There's, there's two sides. On the point of just moving away and, you know, the, the lifestyle side of things, it's great. I love it. But having said that, I spend 90% of my time just, you know, sat at my desk. It doesn't really change much depending on where I am, just the way that I work. The reason I'm here is because it gives me all the tool, tools I need to do just that. It's, you know, it's, it means that when I do get a break and I go outside, I'm in Cape Town at the moment, so the sun's out. And those moments really make a difference for someone like me who spends the, the whole time in, in, in my house. Obviously, I now have the luxury of being able to make those choices. But also, as obviously people are finding now, more and more people work remote, so more and more people are having that choice. There's a balance because I see it time and time again. People in the remote space gain a certain amount of success and then they go to like Bali, they go to Thailand, and then the level of success slips away because they're no longer in the environment that got them there. They lose touch with what actually got them to where they are now. So for me, I've tried to stay grounded to what got me here, which is having a space and environment where I can really focus and work. So again, coming back to the point of just being like a, someone that could spend a lot of time with themselves. For me, I came here and I didn't know anyone. Not what I didn't know a single person in Cape Town. I had got mutual connections that I could potentially meet, but I had that wasn't lined up. I just came here. That's just kind of who I am as a person. I'll just comes back to that point of independence I can just get on a flight and go somewhere and I'll, I'll work it out I didn't have a plan coming here it was just like taking a, I was just like I, I booked an Airbnb and I booked a flight and I brought my laptop and here I am working away and like now I'm meeting people and I went for dinner with a couple of people that again are great people for me to network with and connect with and there's always people you know if, you, if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and open open up a you know put, up, put out an open arm there's a lot of people that are willing to take your hand and shake it and people you know we are still social creatures so it's not impossible to find people in a new location so it's been a, it's been a case of set, putting myself in an environment where I can continue to work this is probably going to be the busiest three months of the year for me work-wise just because now people want to work on their health and well-being October November December kids are back at school people can find a rhythm between now and Christmas is basically where people, a lot of people just hustle, get their head down. Even a lot of gym guys, this is like bulking season. You walk around in your hoodies and you go to the gym and you work hard. So for me, it's my duty to be in a position where I can support people that need me most. And also now I have a level of responsibility that means I have, like, these, these aren't choices. There's no longer a choice to work hard. Like I have to work hard. I have a team. I have hundreds of clients. I have people depending on me you know people's life i'm paying people and i'm supporting people and that's a responsibility that i have to take seriously so that's what the kind of move here was for me there was a second point that i wanted to make and i think it was touching on the point of just remote working i know this is something that i get a lot of questions about and you know either either how to get to this stage it ties it also closely into personal brands. 
and whether or not it's worth it. That's actually a third point I wanted to make as well. But I think as a whole, if you can, you have to decide what success means to you because to a degree, money is an illusion. Like if you understand how money works, like the money that you have in the bank isn't yours. The bank is using all that money as, as they wish. And when you get a loan, often they sign a piece of paper and in cases they just, you know, that money comes out of thin air. <laughs> so like if you have a, if anyone wants to generate wealth, the first thing I'd recommend doing is scrap, like, you know, brushing up on how money actually works because that's when you can start to, to figure out what success means to you because it's not always money. And that's where you have to think about is success like how much how much free time you have, your social connections, whether you have a business like having a house, having like a tangible asset, something physical, because that's no longer, you know, in the control of the bank. It's physical when you own it. So there's lots of different ways of measuring success. And I think if you can work in the online space or you can work remote now, depending on what you do, it's not a generalization. But one thing that you do have is a lot more freedom of time and people now wanting more and more flexibility. And I think the younger generation, you'll see this come through the younger generation. People aren't going to want to work a nine to five in the same way that they used to because more and more people now want just freedom. And even the older generation, but I know that it will really be ingrained in the younger generation because it's, it's, it's much more a part of the conversation now. It wasn't possible really before. I remember thinking this when I was like 16. This is a really good point, actually. I remember thinking when I was 16 because a teacher told me, like, the job that you work when you are older probably hasn't even been created yet. And it's like, that's something to really think about. When you're, when you're still on your way up trying to figure out what you want to do, it might not have even, you know, based on the rate that the world changes, it might not even or exist yet. Or you create it yourself, in your case. Yeah, but that's obviously uh, have it, uh, having the tools to do so. I can do it on my own. The, like, the, the only reason I've been able to do what I do is because of other people. Again, coming to that, back to that point, that biggest lesson I learned in Ibiza that you can't do it alone and there's a lot to be gained from surrounding yourself with other people. So, yeah, I think it's really important to, to frame what success, joy and pleasure and fulfilment actually means to you and not get caught up by what other people's metrics are so if you could take some time to figure those things out i think it's really important as well as a good exercise is just understanding your priorities and this spans into even everything down to your social connections and your relationships so i actually was thinking about this this morning and i wrote down for me like health and personal space is probably my number one priority because if I don't have that, I can't even serve anyone, if uh, friends, family, or otherwise, if I tried to, because I wouldn't, you know, be myself. Next for me comes family, especially like my mum. She, like growing up, she was the one that, you know, I wouldn't be that I wouldn't be here without her. So she kind of comes next. Next, I feel sorry if I ever find a partner because they're pretty low on the priorities. But it, you're, I'll be able to. To, you know explain why that makes sense next is my personal mission and that's so this is where you can start to understand how you can allocate your time and you know what means most to you next is my personal mission and fulfillment and then after that comes social connections and a part of 
Because if the top three are sorted, I can at least give myself to other people. If the top three aren't sorted, then you know, you're know you not going to have as much to give. And a little tip, I wish someone told me this when I was uh, like younger or years ago, is it when whether it's with a client or a family member or a partner, be clear on your expectations and your priorities from the outset. Because if I if I met a partner, and a lot of this, I, I was listening to a podcast from, again, Diary of a CEO that talked about this specifically, because I've been doing it with my clients. If I set really clear expectations, then they, you know, they know what to expect. If I tell them 24-7 WhatsApp communication, and then like, I haven't been clear on the fact that, you know, I need some personal space, it might take me time to reply, whatever. They then have, you know, the poor expectations and it leads to, to us butting heads. And in the case of a relationship, if you need some personal space or you want to go on a trip without them and you haven't set out these expectations, then they're like, oh, don't you love me? And all this other stuff. But it's like, no, these are like in order for me to give everything to you, these things have to be met. So I found that especially with a client, with a team member, it's really important if you have clear expectations. And, you know, people are scared or worried about having the hard conversation. But if you don't have the hard conversation, you have 20 times more hard conversations down the line. So whenever you meet someone, it doesn't have to be that regimented, but it's just like make sure you have clear expectations of what you can expect from one another. It will save you so much hassle. And I'm continuing to learn this now. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, yeah. but if you haven't set them out, then it gives people scope to have their own. They Then people assume what the expectations yeah. are. And it's like, even if you've got like a uni group project, trust me, you don't want to be going to your uni friends like, oh, like, like you know, setting out our expectations. You're, you're going to sound like a bit of a nerd. But you have to frame it in a way you know, yeah. that doesn't make you sound stupid. But it's important. They're the conversations that you're scared to have, but that just drive you insane down the line. So those are some fantastic uh, skills and lessons that you've been able to to pick up on in your in your more recent journey. And one of the things I'd imagine a lot of people will be curious about is how someone like yourself coming out the other side of university, building this project, having to pay other people to help develop your app, how you support yourself during that time. And now you've moved to South Africa. Of course, it's not as expensive as living in London. Um, but could you maybe impart saving, some... saving, saving money being here? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but no. So, like, how have you been able yeah. to do that? So as I said, I in my final year of uni, I was day trading crypto, which made me a decent amount of money, which is what really allowed me to to initiate the coaching platform. And like I said, they take the, the people who develop it take revenue share as well. So it's not so there was an initial investment. But that wasn't something that, you know, was extortionate because they were taking revenue share. It's been a success. So I think their revenue share is probably, you know, more than maybe what some people would pay for a one-off development. So it's like it's, it's, it's been a mutually beneficial relationship. But in the case of building a team, it's interesting. I've always tried to foresee, like, who would I hire if I had the funds? And then it's so it's, it's always being conscious of one like I always have a like a dollar or a pound value on an hour of my time. 
that I don't I try not to compromise on and if I can hire someone else to do something that takes me that long for cheaper and yet that can be a metric of you know like you can set that metric according to how much you're actually earning if, if, if you're working at a job and you're earning you know like 15 pounds an hour then you have a very clear idea of how much an hour of your time at that point in time is worth because that's what you're working for so as time goes on and as you evolve you can continue to, to shift and change that figure and once you can hire someone to do the same job as you for less than what an hour of your time is worth you're then saving money because you buy back your time and you can invest that into other things so the first person i hired is a va a virtual assistant her name's jamie she's an absolute legend um that saved me an enormous amount of time because it's picking like I run 11 different social media accounts and I don't post on most of them my VA my VA helps redistribute a lot of that content and this isn't some four dollar VA from the other side of the world she's in the states I pay her well I know there's two ways of going about it for me in terms of something I'll, I'll come on to how to kind of you know foster a team afterwards but for me I would I would rather not pay minimum wage just you know to get someone on, on the other side of the world to do manual labor for me that's kind of not the, not the way i like to go about it i know it's all relative because in their money you know it's it's the same amount for them this is maybe it would be for you, for paying someone in the uk or the us more but yeah that was the first hire i made and i actually made it before i really had enough money to do so not like it was it was just a, a, like a risky decision at that stage of where I was at because it was the, before the coaching platform had even launched, and I, I've told this plenty of times with this, in terms of like the story of the coaching platform. I ran myself down to basically like zero pounds the day of the launch, so like I spread myself thin to the day of the launch. Um, it had to work basically, and I'd, I've shared the full. It's called the live story on my YouTube shared exactly kind of the ins and outs of that but then it's a case of playing with the cards that you've got and just judging and assessing over time who you have the funds to bring on board obviously there are going to be certain fundamental things that you need in a business you need customer service you need you know someone answering people people's emails but then as time goes on and you have more disposable income it's just a case of you know figuring out what the best investments are to make one of the biggest things I've invested in in the last year's content is a videographer and photographer. Like we, you know, I've invested a hell of a lot in that. And it's not necessarily like, there's not a tangible return on investment, but I doubled my Instagram following from 80K to 150K. Well, just under doubled. From, from that point in time, it's just a case of assessing what disposable income you have and investing it accordingly. Um, coming back to the point of money being a, an illusion, for me, there's no value in having money in the bank. Like money in the bank is just sitting there doing nothing, especially when you're trying to build a business. So the way I allocate things, it's like everyone's, everyone's different, <laughs> but I split the business and my own personal income. And I try and separate myself from the business as much as possible. So I have my own bank account, my own money. And my money allows me to live 
and provides the lifestyle that you know is in line with how much the business is earning and how much I feel like I want to spend. Like I'm, as I said, I'm in Cape Town, I'm spending less money than I would do if I was in in London. I don't live an enormously flashy lifestyle. My time and energies. I'd rather hire a team member than buy something nice. Like it's that's that's the trade off that I'm making at the moment. But then you've just got the business that for me, it's like if there's money in the business that I can invest that will take us further or build that asset, like I'll invest it without a question. And I'm not scared. On numerous occasions throughout our journey, I'd be happy to run the business account down to zero because you have to take those risks quite often. And I have this image of like in my head, uh, Ben Francis, the founder of Gymshark and Steve Bartlett, two people I really kind of look up to, talk about this a lot putting everything on the line to make it work. And that's something that I've had to do on multiple occasions. Like I said, we'll be launched around myself down to zero. And on numerous occasions throughout the journey, I've had to make I've had to make decisions, especially financial, that I may have not even had the money yet. It's just like I'm gonna figure it out. Just gonna figure it out. And I even listened to a podcast from the guy who made Soho House, who's just, you know, put a put a deposit down on one of their buildings before you even had the money to do it. And it's just sometimes you've got to take that risk. And once again, it comes back to, are you in a position to take that risk? I am. Not everyone is. But if you're young, if you can always, like, if if everything went to pot, you know, you could run back to mum and dad and you'd still have food. And that's the metric that I, you know, that's that's the metric I use as to whether or not you're in a position to take a risk. Can like, what are the stakes? If you have a family, if you have a child, it's different. You've got a child to look after, you can't do that. But I can. So that's where, now obviously I'm in a position where I try to, separating my personal income means that even if I do something with the business that's risky, I still have my own personal income that allows me to live. So it's not like I'm ever risking everything. In the beginning, I was risking everything. As time goes on, it just becomes, I think it becomes less reasonable to to do that. It's still risking a lot. Um, I think risk taking has played an enormous role in being able to get everything to where it is now, like an astronomical role. Again, coming back to content, I went, I planned a trip to Dubai with my videographer and. I'll tell you a story when I was in the lead up to it because I just invested. So we just launched our app on the app store and heavily investing in the business. And this trip to Dubai with my videographer, I just kind of like, I knew again, following my intuition, just knew it was something that we needed to do. There was opportunities and people to meet out there. And also content wise, we needed content. So planned that trip before I basically had the funds to do it. And just also start to kind of figure it out. And you do. You do figure it out. And that's why to some degree on on another more relatable level, it's like if you set out ambitious goals that scare the crap out of you, that don't seem achievable, but when you set them out and when you commit to them, it's like, okay, I'm gonna have to figure out how to get there. Because you, you that's when you start to go about your day and think about is, is my current set of actions likely to or even possibly going to get me there? Most of the time it's no, so it's like, okay, what is? 
if I set some crazy goal for clients, these are when I come up with the best marketing strategies. It's when I come up with some mad goal and I'm like, our current strategy is just not going to cut it. So you come up with something better, something new, something inventive, something creative. And then you start and then you keep pushing the needle. And it's the simple act of goal setting. Like if you set three to five goals that are clear, improve my gut health is a terrible goal. It's like, what does that even mean? You don't like if if you say to not bloat from a single meal in my meal plan, that's measurable. That's clear, sorry. If you make it measurable, you know whether or not you're closer to achieving it. So it's like to not bloat from a single meal in my meal plan, which I would track on a habit tracker. So you tick off a box if you do or don't. So measurable, and then it has an end date. So you know that end date is absolutely vital because that's what initiates urgency. If I said set out a goal to have 100k followers on TikTok, and that was it, you take it as long as you know you feel your needs. It's called Parkinson's laws. Work expands to fill the time allocated to it. So if you say I want to buy a house in three years, you'll take three years over it. If you say I want to buy a house in a year. You shift your actions to make the level of work required match the time frame you've given yourself. So when you set an end date, you initiate urgency because it's like, are my current actions going to get me there by that end date? No. Okay, well, what are? What actions are? What do I do? And you shift and you get creative. And you mainly, you just start cutting out the fluff. It's not getting you anywhere. If you've tracked meticulously the time that you spent, not you, sorry, this sounds like a, this sounds like a <laughs> personal attack. No, no, no. If, and I do this as well. I have to constantly do this. If you meticulously monitor how you spend your time, you'll realise how much you waste. And this is myself included. Like, it pains me how many times I get sucked into social media and I just get pulled away. Like, I'm in no way am I painting myself as picture perfect. I'm far from it. But these are things that I have to, these are lessons that I'm continuing to work on. So you waste so much time. But when you have a big, freaking ambitious goal, you've got to tighten things up because you're a bit more urgent. So, precisely. It's like yeah. when you eliminate, when you eliminate the possibility of failure, or when you, as you say, Parkinson's law, you know, you have to give yourself an appropriate time and not just kick it into a long grass because it'll always be other things that you can fill your time with and it, that's something that David Goggins says isn't he he's like, he's like a, write every single thing that you do down and then you could even because I, I installed an app on my phone which tracks every app that I use and for the durations and the number of times and you I think it was a couple of years ago you look at it you're like how on earth have I spent four and a half hours on Instagram today like how has that happened cumulatively over the course of the day and I think I guess the first step is being honest with yourself with that kind of stuff. Um, well, and, right. the, and the second it's step pain, is having it? something which will, like with what you're building, having something which will supersede that, I think is the... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my, my stats. This is <laughs> completely unplanned. But it's just a reminder that like, we're all in the same boat. In, in the last week, I've spent 18 hours, 52 minutes on Instagram. And obviously my job's there to some degree. So there is some reason for me to be on there. But there's a, also some reason, you know, for me not to be on there for well, 19 hours. Are you, are you hours spending in, in, in three a hours week. a day? Yeah, are you spending three uh, hours yeah. a day? Uh, yeah, that, that is not, you know, that is very suboptimal. <laughs> because... 
while some might be you know DMing people, posting whatever, not spending nineteen hours on it. So as I said, I get sucked away. Many people do, but as a whole, if you're trying to add or remove a habit, habit, don't rely on willpower. Just doesn't work. Doesn't work. It only lasts so long if it does as well. You've got to put things in place. Like I'll show you. You can see on the. You'll be able to see on this on the camera. Sorry if you're listening to this. But basically, you know when you swipe right on a phone, it comes up with the app library now. So it comes up with a library of all the apps that you have installed. So I got into the habit. I was removing social media from my home screen so that I couldn't see it. And then I got in this like intuitive habit of swiping right to the app library and I knew exactly where it was. And in like 0.1 of a second, I could get into Instagram, even though I've removed it from my home screen. So now I have all these pages with just <laughs> one app. It's just the live yeah. app. So that I do it naturally. I swipe right to go to the app library and then I swipe again, I swipe again. And there's about six obstacles in the way for me getting there. So then by the time I get four in, I'm like, Ben, what are you doing? And I swipe back and I don't go on it. So it's like, I'm no longer relying on willpower. I've put a system in place that stops me. And Precisely. The, the screen time I gave you earlier, that was on one phone. I have two phones. I'm not going to go digging in this. Sure, well. no, no, no. Yeah. Two. But you uh, get the problem. Like, we're all in the same boat, but it's important to be mindful of where you, when and where your attention is being stolen because big companies are paying lots of money to very clever people to help them steal your attention. So yeah. you've got to put systems in place to, to resist that. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And, and like you say with the willpower thing, just to very briefly attach on that, it's like you, you have this perceived, or at least I'd, I've definitely have this perceived unrealistic expectation of people that you see who are like super driven, super disciplined, but then when you peel back the layers, it's actually that they put things in place, which means they won't be required to use their willpower. You know, it's like yeah. we we can't force ourselves to do things, but if we make there be no option or make it an easier choice to make the difficult choice in a weird way of thinking mm. about it, then that will obviously make it um, no longer requiring willpower. As a whole, this is where the concept of designing your environment is so important. Like designing your phone, your workspace, your car, your house, your kitchen to set yourself up for success is so important because if you have crap food in the house, the likelihood of you eating is much higher than if it's just not there. That's that's designing your environment. The first thing I'd say to someone following a meal plan is you don't want to waste it, but just stop buying other food because it's out of sight, it's out of mind. You're no longer relying on willpower. So it's an important point. I, I've had to go to, I redesigned this office space two days ago because I was like, it's not quite setting me up for, there's too many distractions. It's not quite organized. And that simple act of designing, it's like you have to pitch yourself as the architect of your life and change things to, you know, to, to prompt positive habits and to remove negative ones. It's like if you were to Sounds float like... above your life or give advice to someone else or, you know, just design the most optimal environment for less distractions and clean your room, then obviously it's going to be conducive to doing whatever your desired outcome is, which 
being productive, being creative. I think we downplay that quite a lot. And I, I mean, even with, with remote working, not I want to touch on that <laughs> too much. We've, we've, we've spoken about that. Mm -hmm. But that's definitely a struggle for me. I prefer to go into the office because oh, the yeah. environment at home, I cannot switch. Especially now I've got the podcast going. It's, it's, it's yeah. so tempting just to start editing a podcast, even though I'm supposed to be searching through Excel spreadsheets for work. So in the work yeah. environment, wearing, you know, a shirt and some nice shoes, it's just like a... You switch on a bit but. but that's that's where if you are if anyone is working from home like set boundaries between your personal and professional life yeah. so i've got one of one of the things on my habit tracker at the moment is get dressed for the day so now i get i get up i have a time in which i start work either i have one like you know if i'm waking up at seven i make sure that i start at eight and that's like i have to be at my desk like in the same way that you would a, a job and if you have to start at a certain time and you have to wear certain clothes, I've been, this I'm not I've not put the shirt on for the podcast. I wear a shirt most days now, even though I work from my home, because I was finding myself to just sit in my tracksuits and act like a slob. Yeah. And it's hard to develop boundaries, so you have to put them there. But the point you're making before we were making before about designing your environment, like the people you surround yourself with, is probably one of the biggest things to consider here, because. Lots of people that are trying to push themselves personally, professionally struggle with the fact that people aren't on that same wavelength. And that's why a lot of people lose friends when they do. But I know, not that I've lost friends, but there's no bad blood, but I've had less people around me since going on this mission because people's, you know, people's are on a, a different life mission, if you will. And if you're really serious about doing something to like a high level, you have to scrutinize who you spend your time with because it sounds harsh, but it really does make a difference because surrounding yourself, it, let's, let's, let's not look at the negative side and let's look at the positive side. Surrounding yourself with people that pull you up is like a superpower. It really is because those like leaning on their, you know, support and, thoughts and ideas and qualities takes you so much further there's only so far you can go by yourself and that's where there will come times where you have to you know zone in if if you're in a position where what you're doing just requires hours of time like when i was first setting up the coaching platform there were just hours of time that needed to be spent getting it set up but then once it's set up it starts to shift towards you know, how do I use my hours, what like, and leaning on other people and thoughts and, it, you know, relied a bit more on creativity and, and being inventive and stuff like that. So it's a trade-off. But when you're not no longer just trading in hours, think about who you surround yourself with and, you know, try and absorb what you can from others because I've learned, other than the, either from the tough lessons myself or from other people is what I've learned the most from like my photographer videographer Pedro we speak to each other every day and half the time like we're on the same wavelength we're both on the same similar mission and that means we you have someone to confide in and to speak about to bounce ideas off and I found that so valuable because you can lose a lot of social connections when you do stuff on your own and I'm continuing to fight this myself by the day this is one of the things that I haven't got right it's so important to maintain social connections 
obviously COVID was an exception, but now it's, you know, the world is freed up and it's less of a, well, I say that it's a different world to the one that we, we, you know, went into COVID with, especially things like remote working. But if you can, if you can find people that are on the same wavelength as you, just like, don't let them, don't let go of them, treat them well, because it can take you so much further than you would otherwise on your own. Perfectly summed up. And that's actually one of the and questions. And get rid of the more. people that pull you down. Yeah, I know we yeah. said don't touch on the negative, but get get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, just chop them off, read, leave them red. Yeah. Um, now, it is a hard thing to negotiate, uh, especially if you're more agreeable as a person, like temperamentally, you know, like it's it's hard to let other people down. But at the end of the day, you've got to put yourself first especially if you're trying to achieve something which overall does provide value to other people, but you've got to, like you say, it's an extension of the environment, you know, not just what you find yourself in, but the people you're communicating with. And I was going to ask a question on, you know, how you found that, you know, being alone and friendships you made through uni, but I mean, I, you kind of perfectly summarized it really. And it's a lesson that I guess I'm supposed a little bit earlier on that journey, but I've definitely realized after school, your friendship groups become a lot smaller but it's a lot of yeah. a lot of a tighter circle and like i have a few mates from home and we're all doing different things but we're all on the same wavelength in terms of mm-hmm. being successful and driven and productive and that's so important to place yourself within that so you can you know there's there's relatable conversations like i'm i'm sure in many ways as has been self-evident from this discussion now you and i probably share in some of the general ways of thinking and mm. the mindsets and the self-development and time management and all that kind of thing. And I'm finding it really, uh, really inspiring listening to you as well, because it's, you know, for anyone who's my sort of age or maybe younger or wherever at in life, you can sort of see um, an example of where you've made quite a success of it, I would say. I think this is, there's, there's always, there's always trade-offs. Um, it depends how you define success. If we define success purely by social connections, and I say, I mean, I'm a bit of a, I don't know, for me, happiness and fulfillment is something that I've worked actively on and I'm doing well, but there, you know, a lot of people in the entrepreneurship space maybe couldn't say the same. So if you've measured success by happiness, they might not actually be that successful. But yeah, it's, so it's important happy? to just be successful. Yeah, yeah, that's something that I am actually. It's it's also, again, it comes to back to how you define happy. I know I'm definitely fulfilled, but to be honest, as I said, I'm someone that naturally enjoys spending time by myself, and I'm a very sociable person. Like I know a lot of people. Like I'm, like I said, I came to Cape Town. I've already met people here. Went for dinner the other night. I'm like. You know, I've got stuff planned. Like, I'm not an antisocial person, but I enjoy spending time by myself. And, again, if for me, I, I don't really think about the word happiness. I always think about the word fulfillment because I don't really know what happiness means. But for me, there's, there's fulfillment and then there's pleasure, short-term pleasure and satisfaction. I don't really know. I haven't figured out where I think happiness falls within that spectrum. But again, it depends. You can define these words however you want. 
if you decide that happiness to you, what like come back to your priority list. It's like for me, I've, I've clearly stated what my priorities were. So if mine is my health and my personal space, right now that's ticked off. My second one's my family. Third one, my personal mission. It's like I'm I'm addressing what is most important to me. So you have to decide okay, what's most important to you, and then you can define what is success. Because that's where if you define success by money in the bank. As I said, like let's say with my coaching platform, we're constantly pouring money back in. Like we're not we're not just stacking up a pot of of money. It's it's not how it works. But we're building something that for me feels like a success. So yeah, define what you know what you're after is is really really important because. Otherwise, you can chase what other people define as success, and it might not lead to an enormous amount of fulfillment. These are the deep things that I, I, I can only really have deep conversations. It's just <laughs> same who I am as a person. But yeah, I'd rather that than you know a lot of people avoid these conversations and and struggle. A lot of people struggle, so they're important kind of questions to ask yourself. What's the direction? What's your vision for your live gut health coaching and platform? The fundamental mission is helping as many people as possible. And it's very, very difficult to separate that trying to help people and trying to build a business because the more people you want to reach, the more money you need, the more successful the business has to be which means you have to have an effective marketing strategy. And it's like, it's a fine line between the fulfillment side of things and the business side of things, but the two have to kind of go hand in hand. So the plan with live is to just take it day by day, one step at a time and just navigate how the world changes. I think positioning wise, we're in a good spot because people are starting to understand the importance of gut health uh, the awareness within the public eye is increasing by the day. But for me, there's a greater mission, and that's the injustice that is currently within the traditional health system. And I first realised that when, you know, it it nearly ruined my life. And so if I were to, to like I said to every member that joins the team, especially our coaches that work with us, that our greater mission is providing the support that people deserve that they currently don't get. I'm starting to speak more personally. Um, so I know, did you do a TED Talk? Did I see in your... I hosted like a, a TED, TED event. Uh, I hosted. Yeah, so that's, so that's where for me, I'd like to, I'd like to do a TED Talk to just talk about these things because fundamentally in my opinion i'm not a conspiracy theorist i find this to be to be true our current health system doesn't serve the pop our population's health and that's so for me like i said we are just trying to play our part in that we, we can't solve we're not, we're not freaking superheroes we, we do our best to be but it's about doing our bit which is helping people with their digestive health and making it accessible to anyone and everyone that potentially needs it. Um, I'll retain 
the steps that I think we have to take as a business in order to get there. You know, I think it's it's important to to leave some things to some things down to mystery. But like I said, it's finding that blend. Sometimes it's it's difficult as a, as a business because you feel like you've lost touch of the the the, the the help that you're providing people because you're, you're ha- you have to be focused on the numbers, the figures, the conversion rates and the sales and all that kind of stuff. But then I get back a testimonial and I'm like, okay, this is why we're doing this because it's changing and impacting people's lives. So, yeah, I think fundamentally, if most people that work as hard as... Probably, I mean, I, I can say this with confidence because I work pretty hard. Um, as hard as me, have, have got some level of like, you know, trauma or deep scarring that pushes them. And for me, a massive part of that is the, that time where I had IBS and knowing how many people kind of suffer with the same. So there's, there's like a really big internal driving force there that kind of, you know, pushes you on the hard days, pushes you when you don't really want to do it. So in a roundabout way, that's that's kind of what we're trying to do. Again, it's just about doing what we do better than anyone else. And if lots of people do that in their respective niche, in their respective space, then we're on the right track. I know we're probably going to face some competition more so as time goes on. Um, but yeah, just a case of, Taking that as it comes, we'll get there. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Well, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Hmm. Yeah, it's a bit annoying that. <laughs> <laughs> I know with, with content, I've had a, a fair few videos copied and stuff like that. It, it grates that, that, that happens a on Instagram, then, doesn't it? You use the same, uh, like the audio. And then you get over it. Yeah. <sighs> I know, but someone actually used my video. And like oh. half of my video, I spent ages editing this video and it didn't actually have my face in it. And he like cut part of it and then stuck himself at the end. <laughs> so that there's like, there's levels to, to plagiarism. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not right. Is it? Um, so yeah, I think we've, I think we've uh, covered pretty much everything. I think the only question to ask, which I'm sure the, the listeners are dying to know how can they get in touch? I think Instagram is a great place to head to if you're looking to to get in touch. We we are saying me and my VA. She gives me a hand with this most of the time. It's me if I'm actually like responding by by typing, but she helps funnel them my way. Uh, we answer all DMs, so if anyone sends us a DM, you know that you can reach us there. Um, my email is almost always open. There's an email button on Instagram. You, you fling me an email again, I'll answer every single one. In terms of the coaching platform, we have a separate social media account. So my social is at Ben Smith Live, very simple. And then lives is at live.guthealth. And you can just head to the live website. It'll be either in my bio or live's bio. And we, yeah, we offer a, a range of different services. But for most people, the, mo- the plan that our people are most familiar with is called the Gut Reset. It's... Um, it's just providing people that support that I never got. And then I just work with people one-to-one and we have a team of kind of nutritionists and dietitians that also work with people one-to-one. So 
if you, if you're looking for it, then I'm sure you'll find it. So <laughs> we try and we try and market it enough, but I'm sure you'll <laughs> I'm sure you'll find it if if you start heading in our direction anyway. So yeah, I think and also we've it's important to note we've touched on so many topics, and I'd have loved to dive into more about you know my IBS story and journey and I've tried to provide sufficient context so people understand but if you want the full story then just go to my YouTube should be easy to find me again but there's more kind of in-depth conversations there but then uh, it's just a case of saying thank you for having me um been a pleasure great to have conversations that I don't think I've, I very rarely have aside with you know aside from with friends or people close to me so having said that i think these are some of the really really important conversations to have so yeah again congrats to you you're much further ahead than i was when i was your age so don't, don't be too hard on yourself um but yeah it's just been a pleasure no thank you very much i i really appreciate your time i know what it can be like well i don't know what it can be like but i have plenty of friends who are trying to do that sort of thing where they're just grinding and it's just like yeah i just Really appreciate it. And particularly with what you're doing as well, I see as something that's very important. I share your views, not necessarily from personal experience, but on the healthcare system with regards to the lack of nutrition training when you're studying medicine. And I think generally there needs to be a, a better approach. And I really love the way you're trying to come at that from personal experience. So thank you very much for being willing to share your story and some of your psychology I, into it. I think that, that comes from all of us speaking out doing exactly what you're doing now having a podcast you know if we all if we all use our voice that's the only way that we can spread these messages so yeah again you're doing great work and it's been a pleasure